I'm wondering if you or somebody you know has ever been bumped involuntarily from a flight. I, I, I have not. I have taken the money before, uh, which is a great story about running through the airport in uh, Salt Lake City one time. But uh, I, a week ago, I was at some denominational meetings for uh, the week, and uh, I loved my time getting to go to Chicago. I was encouraged by conversations that I had with uh, colleagues. My imagination was fired by the resources that we had. It was really wonderful. I, I was glad that I went. But a couple of the flights that I took were completely full. And you could hear a little bit of the panic in the workers who were there at Southwest trying to get everyone to check their bags. And I, I think that they were thinking that they were going to get yelled at by some people. Nobody got kicked off, as far as I know, from those particular flights. But I know that there are crazy stories about people who go completely berserk when they get kicked off a flight. Many a TikTok channel has come forward from that sort of thing. And I know that I know that's because airlines routinely oversell their tickets because they know that some people aren't going to show up. And sometimes when everybody does show up, they end up having to bump somebody. And the funny thing is the airline system doesn't really make it a big secret about who ends up getting bumped. Uh, United and American and Delta are very open about the fact that the passengers who bought more expensive tickets are less likely to get bumped. If you have higher uh, number of frequent flyer miles, you're less likely to be bumped. Uh, so we acknowledge, hey, you know what, the airline has the right to do whatever they want to do, they can do it. It makes sense for them to kick, not kick off the guy who goes all the time and to kick off a peon like me who flies only according to whatever's the best schedule, whatever is the cheapest flight. They're going to choose the person who's going to faithfully fly with them. I get that. But if it happened to us, it would hurt our feelings, right? It would hurt our feelings. We, we would get literally excluded from the flight. We would watch the door get closed and the plane would take off without us. I'm have you ever had that feeling relationally? That maybe you find out that all your friends had a party and you weren't invited and it felt a little like the plane took off without you. You got a little kicked off. You, you, you are still in the airport. And so it's painful. It's painful when there's a dividing line between who we feel like are the haves and those who are the have-nots, those who are in and those who are out. I suppose it's mostly only painful if you're on the out, I suppose. Um, that's the only one where it hurts. So we associate those clicks with middle school and high school. I want to tell you, if youth, you, you experience that all of the time. And I want to let you know, all of the adults in this room know what that felt like, and we completely commiserate with you about what that is like. We understand. We empathize with you. But the bummer is, it doesn't completely go away. There's kind of the cool click in the PTA, I guess. Uh, there's uh, people who, who are at work who seem to be well-connected, and sometimes that can even touch our church community. So this isn't a new issue, though. Nearly 2,000 years ago, the Apostle James spoke about this very issue, the issue of favoritism, something that we may not love, but we come to expect it outside in the world. And he's saying some of these things have come to infiltrate even in the life of our church, like, like when it's smoky outside and it comes in through our windows and doors, it's, it's entered into our life here. And James is going to tell us instead, I've got to turn my clicker on, I'm going to try to be, I'm, I'm going to be responsible this week. So um, James is going to tell us, he's going to say, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. He's saying there is something about the Christian life 
the, the Christian message that we proclaim that says that we should live differently, that should produce a different kind of community. Let's, let's read this whole passage. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated against, among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? But if you, if you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, you shall not commit adultery, also said, you shall not commit murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Let's pray. Lord, we, we ask you to help us to understand this word. May your Holy Spirit speak, and may we have ears to hear and hearts that are receptive to what you want to teach us today. We want to hear you and to act and respond to you. Maybe so, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, our message series right now is in the book of James. Each week we take another section from that book and we read it and we try to understand it a bit better and consider how we can put it into practice in our daily lives. There are parts of scripture that we have to work a little harder to understand or maybe to figure out what our concrete next step can be, but it seems like that's never a problem with the book of James. It is an eminently practical book. Other letters, when we read them, can be a bit more philosophical. The book of Romans, the book of Hebrews, those can be a bit more philosophical at times. But the book, point of the book of James is that our theology, our study of the, the idea of God, needs to show up in our daily lives. So he doesn't have a problem with theology. In fact, he's a big theologian himself. But the main emphasis of this book is that our actions shape and demonstrate our theology. That our faith needs to be a faith in action. So to catch you up, in the last couple of weeks, James has already touched on our response to trials, and he says that we should also be trying to um, be committed to lot, apply the Bible into our daily lives. And at the start of chapter 2, he begins to address our nagging propensity to favoritism. So in, in verse 2, he gives this really exaggerated uh, example of treating two people really differently. Uh, he says, uh, we, whoops, I had, a, I had a slide in there, I thought. Uh, okay, here it is. Um, suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy clothes also comes in. 
If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a seat, good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand here or sit on the floor by my feet. So he's got this um, exaggerated example of what's going on in, in here. He says, hey, suppose if this is the case. Uh, he's not actually accusing them of doing this, although, let's be real, uh, this is probably going on in some way. But there can be a thousand subtle or smaller ways that this can be happening where they're doing the exact same thing. This is an egregious example of it. But we have a natural inclination to show special attention, to prefer people who maybe show that they have a bit more money. Maybe they've got a different social status. Somebody who's more beautiful. Somebody who has better social skills. We just think, hey, they're bringing more to the table. I'm going to slightly prefer them, even if we're not doing it consciously. So when, when we get into this message, you kind of expect James to talk about the way that their worship service is going, the content of their, of their service, but he draws our attention to something, this aspect of the worship service that, that we are prone to overlook, but something that all of us have experienced, something that affects the way that we even feel when we come into worship, and it's the way that we were welcomed. Do we feel like we belong? Do we feel like we're connected with other people? And so if we start to assign status in ways that just mirror how the world does things, then we're going to be missing it. A Christ-centered community is supposed to operate differently. And that's super clear in our passage. What's not necessarily clear is the why. Why? Why? If, if you read through this, you think, okay, of course, we're supposed to do this, but why? And he's going to show us that it's, it's a question of incompatibility. Incompatibility with the reality of what Christ has done in our lives, the work of the Holy Spirit, incompatibility with the gospel. So here are the, here are the two things. We should not show favoritism for two different reasons. For two reasons. The first one is that Christ has exalted us, and the second one is that Christ has humbled us. So these two truths are, are before and after this story. Here, let me back up to my other slide. Um, so th there's, in that first four verses, there's almost like a, a parenthesis around that little story about welcoming two different people, a poor and a rich person. And, and those give those two points, in fact. Verse one gives the exalted, and the verse four is going to talk about the humble us. So the first one is, this is verse one. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, must not show favoritism. He says, hey, showing favoritism is incompatible with the glory of our Lord. And he's going to get to it a bit more in a moment, but the, the glory of this Lord who has glorified us. And he's going to expand on that in five to seven. But then in verse 4, then he ends up alluding to this. He says, have you not discriminated amongst yourselves? When, when you're the one that treats a rich person and a poor person differently, haven't you discriminated amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So here in verse 4, he's saying, hey, here's the, here's the humble part. You need to be a little more humble about this because Christ has humbled us. If we're showing favoritism, he says, look, you're introducing this kind of tiered value in Christian community. Some people are frequent flyers, and some people are not. And Christ has told us, hey, no, that's not the way it is. We are all in need of salvation. We are all equal before God. He's going to get to that in verses 8 to 11. So let's, let's do those couple of verses together. So Christ, first of all, Christ has exalted us. Whoops. 
There you go. Uh, so we are believers in this glorious Lord, and as believers, we have been given glory. We've been lifted up in status. Look at this. Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has God not chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised them? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? So he brought up this idea of Christ's glory in verse 1. And it's kind of a warm-up. It's this big contrast that's set up. He says, those people, there are some people who are rich in faith. Even if they're poor in this world, they're rich in faith. And they have been given the kingdom of God. There are, there are these other people on the other side who blaspheme God's name. And so when we treat people that is incongruent with their status before God, we're becoming judges and judging the wrong thing. We're not judging by the right thing. We're dishonoring somebody who is actually our brother or sister in Christ. So riches, according to James's definition, isn't about how much stuff you have. People who are poor may not be very poor at all. They're rich in the kingdom because they're going to inherit the whole kingdom. And that's why it's such a big deal for us to be dishonoring the poor, to be taking away the honor that is due to them, treating them as if we didn't know that some huge change had taken place because they love Jesus. Christ's noble name has now been put on us. We even call ourselves Christians, little Christ. And so we can't put back on our worldly glasses and think that worldly wealth is such a big deal. He's, he singles out even some rich people who are really showing that they are very spiritually poor. They, they blaspheme God's holy name. They're demonstrating that they are poor. And, and it's a big deal because God has given dignity and honor to everybody who knows him, loves him, irrespective of their worldly position. If you've ever hiked in the Sierras at some altitude, you have felt the difference between being down here at Simi and going up to a higher altitude. You can feel what it is at 10,000 feet when you gasp a little for air. You feel the difference. And there are huge differences between the peaks and the valleys here in California. And in, there's a big difference, too, between the rich and the poor in here. And the example he has is of this guy who comes in wearing gold ring, nice clothes, and somebody else who has shabby clothes. We can see the difference. We can feel the difference between them. Here's the thing. If you, even though you can feel the difference between the altitude and the valley, if, I don't know if you know this, but if you were to shrink the earth to the size of a billiard ball, I learned this recently, that actually the earth is smoother than a billiard ball. The, the, actually, the little bumps and such in a billiard ball, if you were to take it to the size of the earth, would be much, much bigger than what we perceive. So when, you, when we see the, the differences between our valleys and our mountains, they're actually, if you take a different perspective on them, they're actually not very much. On a global scale, if you compare it to a billiard ball, it's actually quite smooth. And this is where I'm going with that, is that the differences between rich people and poor people are much like the canyon and the mountain, and it's just the way that we perceive them. If we were to change the scale of what we're looking at, if we begin to see this from God's eternal perspective, the differences between someone who is rich and poor in this world is going to become nothing. 
the Christian message of the gospel is supposed to change our perspective. Because even those who are poor are going to inherit the kingdom. And so from the perspective of eternity, there's no difference between us. Yesterday morning, I was chatting with my nine-year-old, and um, we were actually got into a conversation about spiritual things uh, that he brought up. And uh, he, he asked me, hey, how do you imagine heaven? And we were having an interesting conversation while I was sitting there trying to finish painting a wall that's been put off for a little while. And uh, so I was painting, and he was talking to me about this. And he said, Dad, are there, are there poor people in heaven? And it was interesting. I, I, and not in the sense, like, do poor people make it to heaven, but more like, are people still poor in heaven? And of course I had to say, no, no, right? Nobody is poor in heaven. True riches that we have is inheriting God's kingdom. True poverty is to reject God and to not be a part of his kingdom. So forget inheriting cash. Forget houses or antique jewelry. That is nothing. We are, are, going to, they are heirs of the kingdom of God. That's nothing compared to what we are inheriting. So no, there are not poor people in the new creation. We are rich beyond belief. And that levels out the difference between the mountains and the valleys in this world is how amazingly rich we are. So that, that worldly wealth becomes nothing. But instead of us becoming arrogant about that, what that's supposed to do is to make us humble. He says, we sh secondly, we should be humble. I think I have a slide for that. That's all right. I I think, Sean, I'm going to let you do the slides next week. Okay. 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 No, not Philippians yet. Let's, uh, let's back up. Uh, I'll, I'll get to that in a minute. Uh, I was like, I'm going to do it. I can do this. Come on, I can do this. And Sean is going to do it next week and do it right. Okay. All right. So I want to do verse 8. Can we get to, is there a spot you can see verse 8? I need you to maybe help me now even. All right. So the gospel has humbled us. He says, if you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. This is, what's the link? Can we? There we go. James is saying, hey, if you show free favoritism, you're not treating your neighbor as yourself. You and I, we don't want to be excluded. Why would we do it to somebody else? So if we're acting like that, we're not even showing that we know love your neighbor as yourself. And James says, hey, this is super serious. It's kind of a, a small thing that we take in stride perhaps here, but he says, this is actually really serious. We're, we're breaking God's ways. We're breaking God's laws. Lynn Hubbard summed up the passage that we're looking at here with coffee uh, over coffee with me this week, he said, how many laws do we have to break to become lawbreakers? Just one, right? So you and I, by God's own definition, we are lawbreakers. And, and what if we were to consider, let's, let's think about the Ten Commandments, the, the ten big ones according to God. How are, how are we doing on that one, if we think about it? First commandment, God says, you shall have no other gods before me. Ha have you ever put something before God? Uh. Yeah? Third commandment, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold guiltless anyone who misuses his name. 
Have you ever in your life misused God's name? Whether from praying for something frivolous, I guess, or using it as an expletive? Have you ever stolen anything? That's commandment eight. Have you ever lied? Commandment nine. So we can look at the world sometimes and think, hey, you know what, I'm, I'm a pretty good person. I, I do plenty of good things. I'm not so bad. But that, that's actually not good enough. It's not good enough for somebody to say, hey, I've done lots of good things in my life. That was just one law I broke, Your Honor. And if you and I, as we look at the Ten Commandments, if we've considered, hey, you know, we just consider that we've broken several, and if we actually apply Jesus' view of the Ten Commandments, his, his view that if we looked lustfully at somebody else, we've committed adultery, if we uh, act in anger or in judgment toward other people, we have committed murder on them, if we consider Jesus' way of seeing it, we've broken all ten. We are lawbreakers. And as Christians, one of the first steps is to say, hey, you know what, I haven't just slipped up occasionally. I'm actually somebody whose heart runs away from God. We're beggars who are coming to ask for the mercy of God. So it doesn't matter if you are super talented. It doesn't matter if you are rich. If you are very hardworking, you, you may be all of those things, but all of us are humbled before our God. Nobody can stand in God's presence. Nobody can pat themselves on the back and say, I've got this, no problem. So we're all equal in that way, in our need for God, and it should make us humble together. And unless we humbly realize that without Christ we have no hope, we, we haven't really understood the gospel. So the beauty, though, is that God has come down to our level. He himself has become humble beyond all others. And the Apostle Paul tried to show that humility, and he says, that's the way that we should treat others. Can, can you put that slide up for me, Sean? I mean, I beg of you to put up the one from Philippians now. Paul says this, rather in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, hear that, one another, the way that you treat other people have the same mindset as Jesus, who being in very nature God, he has a high position, he didn't consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. So it doesn't matter if you are rich, if you have every advantage in the community. You don't use it for your advantage. What did he use his power for? Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Let's go ahead and stop it there. So Christ, he humbled himself. And we are supposed to have that same mindset in us. So Christ has exalted us. He's glorified us. And Christ has humbled us and told us, hey, listen, you're not. You are great because I make you great. You are only here because of my grace. And so James, he ends up closing this whole section with verses 12 and 13. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And that, and that statement, mercy triumphs over judgment, isn't just tacked on at the end. This is the center of it all. We have to get this part. That the center of the Christian message is this radical love of Christ that was demonstrated on the cross. And James, he sums up the Christian message with this. He says, it's this law that gives freedom. A law that gives freedom. Because the only one who ever actually lived a righteous life that didn't break the Ten Commandments was Jesus Christ. 
we, we've fallen short. But he is offering us freedom. Righteousness and salvation are in him. We're being offered peace and pardon with God by him. Eternal life because of what he's done. And so this is actually the why of why we don't show favoritism. It's incongruent with what we believe. That what we believe is this amazingly glorious vision of what God has done for us. But we also recognize that we needed him to do it for us. So we have to be humble. So if we recognize that God has done that, then, then, then we are going to be able to be people who can hopefully love our neighbor as ourself. So it allows us to be hey, a little bit more secure in our identity, I hope. If I, if I realize that I'm sinful and I've been honored by God, then I don't have to be very snooty about it. If we recognize that God has humbled you, if we recognize our sin and rebellion against God, it's not about just getting better, but asking for mercy, then I can offer that kind of mercy to other people, that forgiveness and abundance that flows to them. So we, he says we should speak and act like people who are going to be judged by the gospel, by this law that gives freedom. The law is that the only way is through Christ Jesus. All right, so briefly, what are we supposed to do with this? Uh, I think we should do two things. I think we need, first of all, we need to notice the issue. We need to notice what's going on. Notice that there is favoritism. It might be in big ways, might be in little ways. It can be about rich and poor. Uh, favoritism can be about race, about class, country of origin, how eloquently we act or speak. So we, we can't automatically discount anyone, and we need to have our eyes open to see it around us. We don't pretend that Christians are somehow immune to this kind of favoritism that seeps in. So we notice when people are on the outside. We don't have to defend ourselves and think that we're, no, 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 we're, we're fine. I don't make any mistakes. Not a problem. We don't have to be like that. We, we can notice, step back and notice, hey, you know what? We have not been treating uh, rich and poor people in the same way. Do, do we have a different perspective about the way that we would approach other fellow believers, say, in the borderland in Mexico? Would we think about that differently? We aren't afraid to notice if there's some subtle racism that has affected us. I don't need to try to defend myself against that. I can go, hey, you know what? Maybe that has been affecting me. What do I do about it? We aren't afraid to notice when we have categorized people to think, hey, you know what? This person brings more skills to the table than this one, and I just should pay more attention to them. Maybe, though, noticing the issue isn't very hard to you. It's easy for you to notice people who are excluded. Maybe you generally feel a little bit on the outside already, so you're super sensitive to that. And I, I, can give you, I can tell you a secret, even in church life, I'll tell you, you know what, sometimes I get left out of stuff, just for the record. I don't always get all the information uh, about stuff going on. I don't get invited to stuff. Uh, I think that probably every single person who is here has felt that at some point. In a church community, there's kind of no way for us not to sometimes feel that we're left out. And, and what happens is we tend to think uh, we attribute it to something other than just people not thinking about it. I think, you know what? They don't invite me because they don't like pastors. <laughs> that might be true. Is that what you said? Wait, no. Okay, no. Okay. Maybe, there, maybe there's some problem with me personally. We, we, we tend to think that kind of thing, right? It's, but I, let's just say it's not usually malicious uh, it's, it's just people doing life. Everybody's trying to survive. 
uh, trying to get through. So a reaction could be when we hear about this, about, about there being uh, favoritism around we can feel our own victimization. People are leaving me out. And so we feel really upset. And feeling upset, I get that. So I understand that. But that's not the direction that God wants us to, go, to take this. What he says is there is a positive action that we should take. If we see that there's favoritism, what we should do is take our own action to do something, to try, not to try to change other people, but to take action for the good. And, and what's the opposite of showing favoritism? To me, I think it's showing hospitality. We should be people who act in hospitality. So that's, first, we need to notice it. Secondly, we need to do something about it by offering exceptional hospitality. How can you show over-the-top hospitality in response to the dignity and worth that God has shown and given you? This hospitality that God has shown you, welcomed you in when we didn't deserve it. Hospitality is this great goal. You know, we can't be best friends with everybody. That, that's not the goal. The goal, though, I love the word hospitality because we can offer that to anyone, even if we're not going to become best friends. So instead of trying to break into other circles, hey, let's, let's try to think, how can I offer hospitality to other people? I, I, it starts with me. And so it starts with things like welcoming people at church. Mar Arthur Mark DeVries, uh, he quotes a youth worker called uh, Kara Jenkins from Sacramento, and he described the, the welcome that she received in church and how it made a big difference to her. She says this, When I was a sophomore in high school, I attended a youth group, and I was pretty cynical. I knew I came across pretty hard, and I didn't expect them to care or accept me. Not only, though, were they friendly and warm, but when I came back the second week, they remembered my name. And now that I work with youth, every week I seek out those girls who think they won't fit in, and I love them like a few amazing people did for me when I was a teenager. I know it's easier to gravitate toward kids who look like they have it all together, but breaking down social barriers has to start with our example as leaders. Great. What would it mean for you to offer exceptional hospitality to people because of what you have received from Christ? One Christian man I did, who I ran into, I met, who did that was a brother in France. He was a, a farmer, a Mennonite farmer that I knew, and he used to offer his land in hospitality to other people. He was somebody who worked hard. He had plenty of stuff to do on the side. He's a farmer, but he was also, he was a devout Christian, and he did some practical things to try to care for other people. Now, he, he ended up building a roofed area on his land near his house that was specifically to be used for meetings, like an emergency place if his church needed to meet. Uh, our youth group that we were a part of would go there once a year. We would go every June and camp out on his land, and he would let us stay there. And because it was a covered building, it would help us if it was raining, and we had a place to be. Uh, he also, he specifically would tell his denomination, hey, you know what, if there are refugees who come into the country, I will welcome them into my home. And he, he built some specific things to be able to let more people stay there. So he, he found housing. He was trying to help people to extend this great welcome to people in the name of Jesus. I don't think you have a farm. I don't think. Maybe. Uh, but there are ways that we can offer this kind of hospitality, kind of top-tier hospitality to other people. So we, have to, we can't forget about people who are poor in money. And that's one of the reasons why we do the benevolence offering. We try to help people who are in a specific moment of need. Maybe there are people who are poor in age. I, I had a hard time thinking, if you... Are older, are you poor, are you rich in age? 
Um, or uh, then, but if you're young, are you are you rich in eight years before? I don't know. Whatever you consider somebody to be poor in age, maybe we should act in a way that we would care for people. You know, there are people around us who are poor in politics. You know why? Because they don't agree with me. So they're obviously poor because they don't get it like I get it, right? How can we extend God's hospitality to those who are poor in their political view? I think that's going to be helpful for us. I heard that there might be an election happening this year. Okay. If somebody doesn't agree with us, that we feel like they're poor, but we don't get to treat people with contempt. So we treat them with more honor than what they are due. I'm sure you can think of more things. Uh, uh, there, there might be other things. So here's what I want you to do. Let's go, go to, skip to our challenge. Would you be willing to go to that? So here's what I want you to do this week. I would like for you to offer exceptional hospitality to someone. What would it mean for you to treat somebody with more dignity than what they are, the world would say they are due? What would it mean for us to treat someone with more dignity than what the world says that we should? doesn't mean that we don't have boundaries. Uh, maybe the person you meet this week who is poor, has, you are their boss, and they have been poor at showing up to work on time all week, right? doesn't mean that maybe that person still gets fired, okay? But maybe you, how do we treat them with more dignity than what the world would think that we should offer them? We need to welcome people as we have been welcomed by Christ. Christ is the one who gave us the great welcome. He's given us an exceptional hospitality. So, he said, so James says, believers in our glorious Lord Christ, Jesus Christ, shouldn't show favoritism. Because we've been dignified. We've been humbled. And imagine what an amazing change that would make. Just the feeling around if we were kind of looking out to try to care for each other care for other people around in our community who the world says that we shouldn't even be caring about? What would it mean for us to have a life of prayer that extends beyond our own life, our own circle of friends, but it includes other people? That's a kind of hospitality as well. I think that if we did that, it would change our hearts, it would change our world. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this passage in James and for the challenge that we have before us. It's, it's difficult, but we ask you to help us to be people who, who recognize truthfully when there is favoritism going on, but that we, we take action to bring our words and our deeds in line with the message of the gospel that, has, that you have treated us so kindly. So as we come to the table now and uh, accept the elements of the bread and the juice, we accept those now to recognize the welcome that you have given us May we be people who echo that in our community. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. On the first Sunday of every month, we celebrate the Lord's Supper.